Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 147. Psalm 147 is another praise psalm. Tradition holds that it was written and sung as the uh, Nehemiah people returned to Israel to rebuild the wall. If you remember that story, Uh, In the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites had been taken to Babylon, and 70 years after they arrived, uh, the Persians let them go back, and Ezra was sent back to rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah was sent back to rebuild the wall. And it says at the end of the book of Nehemiah, around chapter 12, that there was songs and psalms and celebrations sung When the wall was done, and tradition holds that Psalm 147 was one of those psalms that is not inspired truth, we do not die on that hill, but it is just something interesting that has been passed down through the centuries. We do not know who wrote this psalm, it doesn't say specifically, but it is a psalm about caring for God's people. If you read in verses 1 through 3, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praise to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, He gathers the outcast of Israel, He heals the brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds. And that is what some commentators will say, that is your evidence that this was used during celebration of building up Jerusalem. This psalm gives us reasons for praising God. It gives us ideas on how to praise God, and it kind of goes from the the macro, the big picture, down to the micro or the individual. And the macro or the big picture is the evidence for why if God cares about this, of course he's going to care about that. And there's three or four of those sorts of things that we shall look at. The first one is in verses 4 through 6. He's talking, he determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So it is saying truthfully that if you go out in the night sky and you look up, There's more little dots of light than you can count. And if you start counting at one side, you'll lose count because there are more than you can count. And there are some that are faint and there's some that are bright. We have sent uh, a telescope up there and we have sent spacecraft with cameras up there. And they even find more stars and there's all sorts of stuff around the stars. God made them all. And he knows the exact number. In fact, he made the number that he wanted to make, and he has named them all. So we can give names. We can, you know, call that star, I think Alpha Centauri is one of them out there. And we can say, you know, that we've named it. But God really knows the true name of that star. He knows exactly where that star is and how it travels. 
that God is in charge of all the stars and everything in the heavens. And if you ponder that for just a little while, if you just read that and you try to think about how big space is, how big the universe is, and all the stuff that is floating around out there that God made it all and he named it all, you will come up with the conclusion, as this psalm does, that uh, that his understanding, in verse 5, his understanding is beyond measure. One other, one other translation says God's understanding is infinite. God's understanding and wisdom is beyond anything we can conceive of. The things that God has created, the things that God has named, and if you could get into a conversation about the name of a particular star, you would ask God what it is. He would not have to look it up. He would not have to go to Google and find out the name of that star. He knows the name of that star. And he didn't even have to think about it. The wisdom and the knowledge that is within God is beyond our measure. And what does this mean? How does this apply? Well, in verse 6 it says... The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. And you say, well, how do I know that he can do this? Well, you go up a verse, and you say, the big picture is, he knows all the stars, and he knows their names. It says elsewhere in Scripture that God knows the number of hairs on your head before and after you brush your hair. He knows exactly at any particular time how many eyelashes you have, and how many hairs that are on your head, how many steps you took yesterday, how many hours you slept last night. All these things are just known by God. And it isn't just random information. God does not know all this stuff so that he can be the next who wants to be a millionaire uh, champion or Jeopardy champion. He knows all this stuff, and he knows all this stuff about you so that when we come to God humbly, when we come to God not showing him all the great stuff we've done, but we come to God repeating back to God all the great things he has done. You want a prayer of praise? Praise God that he knows all the stars. He knows the number, and he knows their names, and then... Praise Him if the, we come to Him humbly, if we come to Him realizing that He has all the knowledge, then He will lift us up and He casts the wicked to the ground. The wicked in this context are the people who come to God with their expectations, who come to God telling God what He is going to do, telling God that He is right or He is wrong, while it is God who tells us who is right and wrong. It is God who tells us what we are to do. And if we understand that, then we are in our own minds knocked down a few pegs and we realize that we got nothing to offer God, that we come humbly asking for His blessing and asking for His mercy. On the front of the bulletin, it has one of those universal words Hosanna, and I've heard multiple languages prayer services, either in person or on um, YouTube, 
And that and hallelujah and amen are kind of like the three Bible words that are not translated in any language. They use those words in every language. And Hosanna is what the people said when Jesus walked through the gates on that first Palm Sunday. And it literally means in Hebrew, God save us. And so when we come to God saying, God save us, or Hosanna, and we use it as a big celebration, we wave banners and we say, Hosanna, because it's kind of a party word, Hosanna, but it literally means God save us, it literally means I've got nothing, I'm in a bad spot, Lord save me, and so when we come to Christ, so one of the first things that we say when we become a believer and a Christian, even though we don't really do that in the Baptist tradition, is we cry out, Hosanna, for Christ to save us, for God to save us, because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot bring anything to the table that will impress God or get God's attention. We just come to Him humbly without anything and say, God save us. And he will. It then talks about, uh, in verse 7, it talks about singing and how to give thanks. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. A lyre is a kind of early form of harp. Uh, it was tuned. There was a proper way to play a lyre that would sound good from what people have written and that have lasted this many years. It wasn't just random noise, it was in fact a musical instrument. And so musical instruments played by talented people, quality musical instruments, are used throughout the Psalms to praise God. We, we use whatever talent we have, and we have voices and a guitar, and we do whatever we can to move along the music and to give a foundation to the music we sing, and that is totally biblical. There is not a statement of the minimum number of instruments or the maximum number of instruments. Some of you very large churches have a small orchestra on the stage leading in the music, and that is fantastic using that kind of talent as we sing praises to God is encouraged by Scripture, and I think putting that much energy into worship, into worship music, I think is a pleasing aroma to God. I think it's what we do to show God how much He matters and how much we know that He cares. Then in verse 8 it says, He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares rain for the earth and makes grass grow on the hills he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So we sing praise to the God, to God. Why? Because he has created a system. He has created an earth that has a system in it that keeps things alive, that there is rain when rain is needed, that there are, if we go out into the into the forest and we see little squirrels running around around here we know that you know nobody none of us are getting the little squirrel feed and going out to Muir Woods and feeding the squirrels we don't have to do that God does that God's the one who feeds 
the squirrels and the possums and the raccoons and although we think we feed the raccoons, God feeds the raccoons. He's created a system where all sorts of life can exist on this earth and the grass grows and we can also put that into uh, ecology that if you drive out to the Central Valley, you see fields and fields and fields of growing something and that if the rain comes at the right time and if they planted the seed in the right way, then it'll grow and it'll grow to a large amount of produce that they will be able to sell and you can't find a farmer. You can find a farmer who, who knows the steps that they do, but can they make it happen? No, nobody on earth can make it happen. Nobody on earth can, for example, turn the Sahara Desert into an apple orchard, okay? God has made that a sandy desert and you cannot without a lot of expense, and you certainly can't continue it, grow anything there that you can live off of. There are places on the earth where you grow things. There are places on the earth where things won't grow, and God's in charge of that. God is the one managing the weather. We think we can guess the weather, but I don't think you can find a weatherman who is 100% accurate. Weathermen are guessing, whether people are guessing, and God is the one who says what the weather is going to be like on a particular day in a particular place that we can be, and we, we go and we enjoy what God has given. It then talks about in verse 10, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of men. This is talking about military. This is talking about military strength. Back in the day, back when this was written, if you had chariots made out of iron and you had multiple big old horses pulling the chariot, that was your tank of old. You were basically indivisible if you were uh, invincible. If you were in that sort of contraption and if you... If you read the Exodus, for example, it talks about the iron chariots of the Pharaoh and his army. That was considered something to put fear into your heart, that if they had that sort of nasty armored vehicle, they would always win. A chariot can always go faster than a person. A chariot can always, you know, fight against multiple people. And... We look at that, and today we look at, you know, the tanks and the airplanes, and we look at how, how a country will defend itself with various borders and missiles and all these types of things. And some may think it's scary that we have that much armament. Other people may think they're safe because of all that armament. God doesn't care. God doesn't care how many missiles you have. God doesn't care how many nuclear weapons you have. God doesn't care how many tanks or horses or people in the army. There are various sizes of armies around the world, and God doesn't care when he looks down at the earth. He is not counting tanks. He is not counting airplanes. That is the farthest from his mind because military might on earth 
is meaningless to God. If you read to your end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, you will have a worldwide army in the valley of Megiddo that will challenge God to a duel. Every tank, every airplane, every able-bodied fighting person will be in the Middle East and their leader, the Antichrist, will shake his fist at God and say, come on, let's get it on. And then without even saying a word, Jesus Christ will wipe them all out. You cannot fight God, no matter how big your army is. You cannot beat God, no matter what you have in the way of might or power or money. You cannot beat God. And so... What does it say in verse 11? But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. So he doesn't like military might. He likes humility. He doesn't like tanks and weapons and missiles. He likes those who fear him. And as we've said before, to fear God for us today simply means to take him seriously. To take God seriously. Do not minimize God, do not minimize His Word, do not jump over things you find because you don't like it or it speaks against your flesh or whatever. The idea that we come to God with nothing, we come to God with nothing but the blood of Christ today, nothing in ourselves. We come with the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness and it is those that God says, I like that, I like that, I like that. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you live on. It doesn't matter anything except how you respond and how you interface with God. If you come to him taking him seriously... And if you hope in his steadfast love, if you are going through a difficult time, if you're going through a good time, and you stop and you check yourself, and you realize that your hope is not in a bank account, is not in a political candidate, is not in uh, real estate, your hope is in God, and your hope is in his love. That is all we have that will last if we talk about the things that we're going to take to heaven. And the big phrase, you can't take it with you. Some people believe they can take things to heaven. There's only two things you can take to heaven. One is the Bible, because Jesus said, never going to pass away. There's going to be Bibles in heaven. I don't know if they'll have this form, but there will be the Word of God in heaven. And so if you study it here and you study it now and you know it, you will be used to it. It will be easier for you to know it and study it in heaven. We do not play catch up in heaven. And the other thing that we can bring is the love of Christ. We receive the love of Christ. We give the love of Christ. We are loving people. We are a loving church. We will continue to be loving people and a really big loving church once we are in heaven. And so you work on things when it talks about treasure in heaven. That is what it is talking about, loving one another, serving one another, knowing the word of God. These are things 
that build up treasure in heaven. The author then talks about the national borders, if you will. It says in 12, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gate and blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. And so the idea, if you look at how great and fantastic and awesome God is, you can actually apply that to your country. And I recommend you pray for America. You can pray these things for America. You can pray that our defenses will be strong because there are people in the world that want to destroy America. You can pray for peace on our borders. You can pray for God to keep us safe. I like the fact that I can on Sunday morning go outside, get in my car, and come here without going through uh, any military checkpoints, without going through, you know, bombs going off, planes overhead, dropping things. There are places in the world where it is very difficult to go outside because of the violence, because of the military violence that is going on. We do not have that in this area yet. And so we can praise God for that and praise for it to continue. I pray for wisdom for our leaders at the local and state and federal level that they won't you know, go off half-cocked and start messing around with the nuclear codes. I pray that they will be calm and have wisdom, that there may be many wise advisors around them to cause them to make very, you know, deliberate, slow decisions concerning things that might destroy our peace, that might destroy the peace at our borders, for example. We need to have... Peace, and it says he fills with the finest of wheat. We are currently a country that makes more food than we can eat. We ship a lot of our food to Africa, actually. We, sh uh, we need to continue to be that way, that we need to be a country that can feed itself, that can have produce, that we can be self-sufficient, and that is easier for a country of our size. It was smaller for... I mean, difficult for smaller, tinier Israel back in the day and even today. But the idea that we can have these things, we can pray for these things. I can pray for God's blessing. I can pray for God's blessing on the leaders and on the land and on our borders and on our military and all that is going on. I see a news story that upsets me. I can pray about it. I can ask God to intervene. I can ask God to bring about Peace, because God is the author of peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. When Jesus is present, when God is in a situation, there is peace, and we can pray for that. Then continues, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool and scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down the crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before it's cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. If a place or the world 
is hotter or colder is in God's hands. It is God who causes the rain to fall. It is God who causes the ice to come down. Back in the 80s, when I was in the military, I had an opportunity to go to Fort Yukon, Alaska. Fort Yukon is the first town on the north side of the Arctic Circle. The Arctic Circle is where you get at least one full day of light and one full day of dark above the Arctic Circle. And the Yukon River runs right through Fort Yukon. And when I got there in April, when I got there in April of 85, the river was frozen solid. If you've ever seen ice road truckers, they would drive on that river. They would drive on that river to get all the way up to Canada, actually. And you can do it when it's solid ice. So this is now when things are beginning to cool, uh, to warm up, and the, the ice is beginning to thaw. And they had an event in Fort Yukon where you would actually bet on the day and the time of which the ice would break. It's called breakup, when breakup would happen, and water could be seen flowing. I could, at that time when I got there, actually walk you know, up and down the Yukon River, solid ice. They, people would begin to bet, and apparently it was a very large, you, know, you could bet large sums of money. And they would bet on when this would happen. And in the middle of the night, I heard a noise that was the biggest explosion I ever heard. I mean, bam, boom, bam, you know, and everything. You know, it felt like, you know, some tank was rolling through town and knocking down houses. And that was the first thawing of the ice in the river, and it was just breaking. I mean, this is ice that's two feet thick. And it was being thrown up in the air, and it was breaking, and the water was flowing again. It took two more days for the full breakup to happen. And somebody won that date and that time. And you say, well, who's in charge of this? You know, they, they don't dynamite it. It's God who's in charge of Fort Yukon's river and whether the water's going to flow or whether the ice is so thick you can drive on it. It is God who makes... The snow in various parts. People wonder if they're going to go somewhere. Is it going to be snowing? Well, like with the weathermen, they don't know. God's going to make it snow, or God's going to make it sleet, or God's going to make it rain. And God's going to make it warmer so that the water will flow and we will survive. It's very difficult for people to live. You cannot live unencumbered in places like Antarctica. You have to live in very thick-walled compounds because that does not support life that much cold. And it is God who made that cold. It is God who froze the poles at both ends of the earth. It is God in charge of the temperature and God in charge of the weather. And so if you are concerned about certain things that are happening in the world about weather patterns or whatever, you do not give money to the government. They do not control the weather. You pray. If you really, really, really don't want it to rain on a particular day, 
you can pray for the weather because God is in charge of the weather. And we've already covered that if you are his child, if you are in his family, he's very interested in what you pray. He hears every word. Now, he will do what he does, but if we make our desires and we can make our weather desires known to God, we can pray for all sorts of things, but the Bible is clear that if there's going to be a change in the weather or the weather's going to go a certain direction, it's God who is doing it. It is God who is in charge of the weather. It is not our scientists. It is not our government. It is not our activists. They are not in charge of the weather. God is in charge of the weather. It then ends in 19 and 20. It says he declares his word to Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so this is talking about giving the, the Bible in the form of the Old Testament to the Jewish people, starting at Mount Sinai and taking it from there. We also have the Word of God. If there's a question, and I've had people ask me this question. They say, what is God's will for my life? I said, how much Bible reading do you do? And they say, well, none. You know, they want some sort of fortune cookie answer of, of what God wants you to do. But you read the Bible. You read the Bible every day. You read through the Bible. You read the amazing stories in the Old Testament. You read the letters of the New Testament. You read what God has done and what God is saying. And I guarantee after some time of this, you will know precisely what God's will is for your life if you are that concerned about it. The Bible's message is not find out what God's will is for you. The message is follow God in all you do and he will make your paths straight. And that's kind of a different way of looking at it. So we have, just like God declared his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel, we have that. We have God's statutes. We have God's desire. We have the heart of God shown in the word of God, and it says he has not dealt with any of the other nations. They do not know his rules. We have a relationship with God. Your person out there who curses God or doesn't believe he exists does not have that relationship. And one teaching of this is we don't expect the unsaved people to follow the law of God. You can't do it. Uh, one person told me many years ago, uh, you don't clean the fish until you catch it. I don't expect the world to live like God or godly or Christian because they're not. I expect this group and me to live godly Christian lives because we've signed up for it. They have not. And so this is a way that we can pray. We can praise God for his wonderful things he's done in nature and for his way that he takes care of us and watches over us and has given us his word to guide our steps. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. For you have declared your word to us. And all we have to do is get into it. All we have to do is read it. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to, no matter what happens in our lives, 
to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. As we praise you, as we watch you, as we ask you to guide us, I pray that you will continue to make our paths straight, our paths level, our paths well lit through your word. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.